listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. This week, we continue our celebration of the Halloween film series with part two of an in-depth discussion with composer and former John Carpenter collaborator, Alan Howarth. In part one, Alan and I chatted at length about his contributions to the scores for Halloween 2 and Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. He also shines some light on the score for John Carpenter's The Thing, his creative relationship with John, and the gear they used for those iconic scores. This week, we dive deep into Alan's scores for Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. We also discuss the score for Big Trouble in Little China, the Coupe de Ville's recording sessions, and much, much more. This week's episode is jam-packed, so we better get started. So after Halloween 3... You know, you guys do Christine. Mm-hmm. Then Big Trouble. Big Trouble, yeah. Prince of Darkness and They Live. So right around the time of Prince of Darkness and, and I guess They Live is when Halloween 4 comes your way. Is that that fair to say? Yeah, I kind of remember being on the end of Big Trouble. And, and the interesting about Big Trouble is I, I, it is the greatest score that we ever did as far as the musicality and the production uh, and that one, it was that movie dictated a lot of different kinds of music than a general horror show. Normally, we had somewhere between six and ten weeks to do it. In this case, because of some other delays in the schedule with optical effects, we had 14 weeks. So we had like a full month beyond our normal window to re-record or put into the earlier parts of the score stuff that we didn't know we were going to do until we got to the end of the score. And I could grab that and and recast it and re-record it and pepper it all back in. So that certainly is the most iconic score. And and interesting, when they did the double CD, it, it was like... 90 minutes of music that was a lot of music <laughs> yeah yeah i don't think it ever really stops uh and and you know and that movie still holds up as well as the rest of them you know oh so, yeah i mean i think it's i mean it's his most fun movie for sure you know yeah yeah, I was sitting with somebody, a female who isn't as familiar with with his work, and and mm-hmm. and that was on, and we were watching it, and I was just, I was just telling her, I was like, 
you have no idea what it was like to be a little kid and see something this awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know, just like the flying little head thing floating around and the, the guy blowing up. I was like, it is, it's uh, my, my same friend, Dave, who I just mentioned before. He, he's like, it is maybe the coolest movie ever made. Yeah. And you know, both the thing and, and big trouble were considered box office flops. Yeah. Yeah. It's because, crazy. Because of, of, of the business, the way the business was done upon the release one, Universal didn't know what to do with it because they had a hit in E.T. at the same time the thing came out and the whole world was loving E.T., the the, the lovable monster. Uh, and so they just went with it. You know, they had a huge hit. So they just yeah. they, they laid it out there. The thing did what it was and they pulled it. And then same thing with Big Trouble. Turns out that the marketing group in, at Fox that was in charge of marketing Big Trouble got fired like two weeks before it came out. So we had this whole dropping of the ball and the new guys not knowing how to handle it, what to do with it, and or maybe even thinking, well, we can't have the guys before us have a hit on their hands. So there may have been a little bit of um, nefarious thought behind there, too. Yeah. But yeah. either way, it was both of that was crushing for John. Oh, I'm sure. Because he, he, he knew he did it. And, you know, today we, we agree. Great, 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 great movies. But at the time, it was uh, the, the Hollywood business. was. Oh, I mean, I always point out, I have another podcast that I do that's about movies with a friend of mine. And we've we've done a lot of Carpenter's films on it. And I always point out that, like, to be sitting in the cutting room making the thing mm-hmm. and seeing what you've done and then to see the reaction to it. I mean, that, it can be soul crushing. And there's, there's some people that wouldn't be able to come back from that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I mean it's it and and then you know Big Trouble just kind of unfortunately it was just kind of too far ahead of its time I think I mean yeah Hollywood didn't really catch up with that until like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon <laughs> like over like uh, ten years later or more even well you know it's interesting because I'm the writer is uh, W D Richter I think uh, and he was the same guy who wrote Buckaroo Banzai which yeah. is a movie I did just before that and he was he just to commission these these fantasies films that uh even buck rubanza has an, an after after fan group now that goes back to it and says wow that was a really cool movie why didn't everybody hear about this thing <laughs> exactly i mean since we're talking about this period of time before we get to halloween four uh, i really because i mean you and i have talked a little bit about it you know privately because i had you sign a coupe de ville's record uh for mm-hmm. me but the big track on the Big Trouble in Little China score that everybody kind of loves, especially because the video got, you know, got kind of re-released on the DVDs when it, when Big Trouble in Little China came out was the Big Trouble in Little mm-hmm. China theme song by the Coupe de Ville's. Yep. And right around that time, I'm not sure of the exact timeline, if it was before or after, but then there's Waiting Out the 80s, which you kind of produced, I guess. I'm waiting out the 80s. I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting The Coupe de Ville was... Uh, John Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, and Nick Castle, 
who that was the name of their band at USC when John was still in dark star mode. Yeah. So, so the Coopterville used to play parties and stuff like that. And so they had that affinity and they're, 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 they're still buddies. I mean, they're, they're yeah. alive. And you can even see a, there's a book that came out uh, photographs from the set of John's early movies where you can see them playing acoustically at like the Halloween rap party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so Adrian Barbo called me up and said, I want to give John a gift. I'm going to hire you to record their next record. That's really the, the bottom line on that. So it was her gift to John because she knew how much he loved music and wanted to play and had all this stuff that he was working on with Nick and Tommy. So uh, in the background, when John wasn't busy, a lot of times it was around December, January, because, you know, there, there's no work in December, January, usually. You know, the movies all come out for fall and then you start up again in February. So there was a window there where we recorded uh, all the Coupe de Ville, pretty much doing the same thing we were always doing uh, with me and John. And then Tommy came by to play some guitar. Nick came by occasionally to do little keyboards. But the main thing was the vocals were the three of them. Yeah. And then, and then I, and I played a little bit of guitar on it too, you know, just as in the, in the doing of it. Sure. And then he pressed 100 LPs as a vanity publishing and, each, each guy got 25 and I got 25 and that was it. Close the book. It was never to, intended to be released. It was just for, for jollies, et cetera, et cetera. But it's good stuff. It is good. She has friends who miss her. Say I'm not to blame. They turn their heads. They feel ashamed. I know she works at yeah, and and so at, at some point, uh, you know, it's it's obviously Coupe de Ville property, whatever they want to do with it. Yeah. But uh, but I I had a couple records, and that I brought to a couple conventions, and people scarfed them up right away. Yeah. Because those are true. Those are true collectors. That is a limited, limited edition. I started collecting vinyl again when I started the book, mm-hmm. because so many uh, of the, the great scores were coming out. And while I was doing the book, I think is when a lot of the Death Waltz re-releases of the stuff you would, had done with John started mm-hmm. coming out yeah. again. So I got a record player just to kind of stay current while I was in the middle of working on this book about horror film scores and Mm -hmm. that quickly became like my holy grail record (laughs) because i mean you're the first person i've ever heard put a number on it it's always like there was a limited number but uh, when you and i talked privately about it you you were the one that revealed that it was there was really only a hundred copies of it that's it and it was and it was never pressed on cd uh it was only a vinyl yeah but I assume that the Big Trouble in Little China track was a separate session. Was that during the same sessions? No, no. I think we were, we were pretty much wrapped up with Big Trouble. It was in kind of the void, the great void from Big Trouble to Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Because, again, it, it was very upsetting for John because he made a great movie and it wasn't successful, et cetera, et cetera. So he kind of went into a whole reflective mode and uh, – as a release, made the hot, the Coupe de Ville stuff, and then we, you know, at the at near the end of Coupe de Ville, I'm trying to, I, I'm visioning the being in the studio and what equipment's there. That tells me what's going. This was still before Prince of Darkness. Yeah, 
But uh, moving forward to Halloween 4, so how did you get introduced to that project? Yeah, and I got to look at my timeline here to get my ducks in order. It was near the end of maybe Prince of Darkness, maybe. And I had been approached by Trankus International Films because they were going to make Halloween 4. And they knew I worked right into John. John wasn't interested in working on it. Again, they had separated themselves from the Halloween franchise. So they asked me. So I turned around, and I remember John in the studio said, hey, John, I got a call from Trankus, and they want to know if I'll do the music for Halloween 4. Because I didn't want to be sneaking around. He was my buddy. Yeah, sure. And he looked at me and says, hey, do whatever you want, man. You know, it's like, uh, knock yourself out. If, if you want to do it, go for it. So I proceeded on and to jump into Halloween 4. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget. Uh, Dwight Little was the director. Yeah. And, and he came by a couple of times. But because I was cranking out more Halloween, I was under the under the orders from Mustafa Akkad to make sure I got a lot of that Halloween theme in there. Like don't don't go yeah. too far away. Use use the the original John Carpenter Halloween themes as often as you can, because that was part of the glue that made the sequels part of the return of Michael Myers. Yeah. And it's also, it's coming out 10 years after the original one Mm -hmm. back then. I'm sure it felt like forever, but looking at it now, looking back, it's like now that I'm almost 40, 10 years seems like nothing. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, kind of, you think of that, you kind of feel like they were much further apart than they were, but they, Mm -hmm. it was a 10, 10 year anniversary when the fourth one came out. And for me as a composer now, you know, I know how to play the whole Halloween theme. I know how to play what we call Lori's theme. I know how to do the dun, dun, dun. You know, I knew all that stuff. So, again, it was just mapping the, the same kind of map that I, I created for Halloween 2 where you know, when Michael does this, you do this. And when Michael does that, you do that. And when we're looking around the town and the empty streets in Haddonfield, you kind of put this. So those were the, the signposts along the way of the score. And then I also then really took off on putting, quote, my own sound on it. Sure. So I was very influenced by the, you know, the, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s music, Pink Floyd for sure, Genesis, Tangerine Dream still. So these influences of my artists that I looked up to then came through into how I wanted to produce the Halloween 4 score. So if you notice, in the beginning, just the opening credits, I didn't play Halloween theme at all. this atmosphere slow building back to you're going to get to Halloween sooner or later, but I'm going to hold out for maybe five minutes before you, you hear dun, 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 dun. And even then I played only in fragments and then only after we finally get to the action, do I kick in the Halloween theme. But I think it's a really nice build 
of anticipation. I try. That's why I was trying to hold back. Like, oh, I can't wait to get. Now, oh, okay, okay, another note. Oh, yeah. But uh, it, it, stand, it it holds up well. And then there was some additional themes because it was new characters. So I create composed you know new music for that stuff. Yeah. And then uh, in the end, uh, maybe overdid it a bit on dun 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 dun, but that's what I was asked to do. Sure. So you know, as a composer, you're providing, you're doing a service. It's like you know, it's like going in and painting somebody's house. They wanted blue. Do not put yellow up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're hired to provide what they want. I mean, I think that's. I work in post production, and when I meet younger editors i work i'm an editor when i meet younger editors they get kind of frustrated sometimes about how they think it should be and i you know having done this for a while now i'm always like they're not even asking for what's best they're asking you to do what they want you to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so yeah i can imagine that that's exactly the way it is if you're not cart john carpenter who's scoring your own films when you're a composer that's asked to score a film it's you have to give the director and the producer what, what they're asking for yeah yeah and actually a little follow-up on that uh what they're asking working with john carpenter so here i am i've scored one two three four this is my f- john's not there but my fifth carpenter-esque movie but remember i sat in the room for guy with the guy for five or six years watching him do his thing, I learned from the master. It was like I went to a school of one. Yeah. How to score a John Carpenter movie. Sit here, work with him, participate, learn the lesson. So, yes, uh, when I did the score without John there, it was still somewhat like what me and John did anyhow. Just, you know, going off in a slightly different direction, different tonalities. But, again, just doing, doing what I learned from John, again, on my own. A couple things. I mean, when John says, yeah, go ahead and do it, do you – I see, I don't – you know, I, I've I've met John and I interviewed him, but, you know, do you think he really cared? <laughs> or do you think he really was like, yeah, sure. I mean, did, you know, he knows that you have to make a buck and uh, – Oh, no, he did care. We were buddies. Yeah. Um, I look forward to him coming over. Uh, the time I spent doing these, these scores with him was some of the best times of my life, so. Yeah. There, there, there's, there's no negativity over it. Sure. Uh, he was, he was candid. Uh, you know, we, we talk about stuff as, as general people and you know, he'd share some stuff with me and, or, you know, he'd be on the phone doing business and I'd hear business go down that probably had no business listening to, but he was in the room. I could, could get away from it. So, you know, I was, I was loaded with, uh, some of the, some of the inside track on some things and what was going down, yeah. but that was that. So back to, let's just, let's keep on the thread. So Halloween four goes down. I also, I, I started a little bit more using the guitar. That was the other thing. I wanted to make the score a little more rock. Yeah, I know the sixth one ends up being 
very much a lot of guitar and stuff, but that kind of gets introduced with this one. Yeah, the little little bit of using the guitar uh, with a phaser on it, not power guitar, but the, the moody guitar things. Mm-hmm. So it had that flavor. And also, at that time, I now had a, a new instrument in the, in the flotilla called an Emulator 2. So there was an Emulator 1 that was a primitive sampler, and we used it, we used it in big trouble for sure. But then Emulator 2 had like 17 seconds of audio sampling. It was like forever. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I worked closely with Emulator, the Emu, the company that made it, and had a, a pretty extensive library of Emulator sounds. So adding samples to the score, uh, in addition to the synthesizers and the drum machines, was, was also part of the palette. Yeah. You know, looking, reading up on it and reading past liner notes, you had an Armada C the Soundcraft board with automation, is that? Yeah. And the Lexicon 224 reverb? And then I had an Ampex uh, MM1100, which was an original, originally a 24-track that had been built out to a, a 16-track that was built out to a 24-track with extra electronics, and I bought that from the recording studio. Actually, it was the MCA Records old machine that I bought and, and rented it for a while and eventually paid for it, and that became part of the studio flotilla. So yeah, analog recording for sure, and, and you know I by now had a, the the videotape synchronized with a thing called QLock, uh, so you literally could you know this was like big guy stuff they had at the TV studios. You could fast forward and rewind and have three or four tape recorders and a video recorder all chased to a spot and start to play, and then within a few seconds all be synchronized and be exactly where you were every time in time code. Yeah, this was still before. I'm trying to think now. I think it's still before any computer sequencing. All the sequencing was still within the machines themselves being driven by the Lindrum flotilla. Uh, and then I think, you're going to get me now. Yeah, something tells me that all the way up through even Prince of Darkness, Prince of Darkness, I may have gotten to like a Mac, a Mac with one mega ram in it you know it was like the first the very first one and there was a uh, a primitive sequencer at the time called mark of the unicorn which is a big one now but uh you know i still use the older techniques though i think the one thing that i i, I switched over for the geekazoids in big trouble because it was wanted to be a big score i used a lot we had midi in the studio by then so i had a lot of midi stacks where there was five synthesizers playing in some blend and and as you played the keyboard it was you know firing all five at once so that was that was impossible to ever go back. So I, I started recording the the stack in stereo. Obviously, tracks were very very valuable. You didn't want to use any more tracks you want because you want to keep more tracks to dub. But I started making these big MIDI stacks and playing the five or six synthesizers with the Lexicon reverb recorded on it. So if you were to go back to the master tape, the the track that is this stack has everything, all the juice on it, the reverb, whatever's happening, all just being captured. Yeah, and and if you ever wanted to go back and do that again, good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 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 I was now in that tech. I was using that technique on Halloween four. So I was recording MIDI stacks and, and you know, even a recording engineer uh, used to work with Pink Floyd. I ran into him one time. And he says what he does is he puts the monitor section of the board all at zero, and records at the level. That's the right level for the mix. Because, because what I started doing in the beginning, learning from, quote, engineers, 
in analog world, you wanted to record every every track as hot as you could because you would beat the noise of the track. Yeah. But then sorting through all that stuff after the fact to get the levels right and stuff like that was big pain. So I really got into what we called the pencil mix. You know, all the faders were set across. You did if you did that, the mix that you were listening to while you were tracking is still there. Yeah. And if you went back on another day, it was still there. In fact, if you open up those tapes now and do the same thing, it'll be the same, same deal. So we, we do Halloween 4. It goes out there. There's a certain amount of success enough that they go, okay, let's do Halloween 5. Yeah. But with Halloween 4 was, um, you know, you said you were given direction by Mustafa Cobb. Did Were you given any kind of direction from Dwight Little? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came by to check on what was going on and gave approvals. Yeah, but 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 he didn't really start to try to steer the boat. He was just fine with what was going on. And uh, there's a track in the film on the soundtrack that's called "In the Shadows," and I find it interesting because uh, it takes on a little bit of a military feel to it with the percussion. Yeah, I'm trying to think what scene that went through. It probably had something to do with cops and when the police were coming or doing whatever they're doing. So I so I kind of gave them the the authoritarian vibe for that part of the, part of the movie to to make you know here here comes authority, the cops, the military, whatever you want to think of. So so you know it, the, the whole the whole idea of scoring is you're doing musical storytelling. So that from my viewpoint, if a person listens to the score all by itself and they've seen the movie the movie will take them on the movie journey. So when I do my soundtrack albums, I don't go for the, the most popular track as track number one. I figure these are real real film fans. They're going to want to put on the score and experience it the way it was, you know, in a chronological way of the way it appeared in the movie. Yeah. So, so, so that's, my, that's my philosophy. Somebody can disagree with this, but that, that was the way I was doing things. And this is your first film as a solo composer? No, no, I had done, uh, just prior to that, another another cheesy movie called Lost Empire with Jim Wynorski. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, in the world of, of, of the Carpenter motif, yeah, this was the first time I was I was left alone. John wasn't going to ever show up. He was done, and it was me servicing the franchise. Now, when you're working by yourself and you're creating new themes for the new character, you know, it's a new storyline, there's new characters, new relationships, you have Jamie, the little girl, and her foster sister and all that stuff and you were talking about how you went to the school of carpenter for composing so was your process basically the same as that you would kind of watch it and improvise stuff yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it was the same it was the exact same studio setup john's not there in this case i'm make, putting making sure the red light's on and then playing <laughs> yeah and, and and just keeping on it and, and re-recording my own performances uh, of whatever it is that goes goes with that deal yeah, how often? I mean, obviously it changes per scene, not even per film. Uh, but if you, when you're improvising stuff, like how many times can you go through it till you find something that sticks? And does it just feel? Does it just when it when it feels right? Yeah, it's just it's just feel. But there's a guideline already established for this movie, so you know when you're going to jump into Halloween theme or stalker theme or empty street theme. Sure. Uh, and and so you start there. You start to play one track. 
that track stimulates the next track, stimulates the next track, and you just keep dubbing against yourself or you know recording more tracks of what you did or counter melodies or counterparts, you know, or bass lines or you know you you produce it. How important can the sounds and the tone you're using? How important can that kind of shape? even how you play it for the creative process. Yeah. Yeah. For me, for me, that's all important. That, that is, that is when I'm being the musician who's playing this particular sound, the sound drives me into what I'm going to play. So sometimes it's a matter of finding the right sound, not just finding the right melody or anything or something. Right. Or exactly. Even today when I'm going to, I'm working on a new score, immediately I look for new sounds that I haven't used before that for me, Say, oh yeah, this this would be great in this in this movie, and I'm I'm so I feel for a long time reluctant to even go back and use that stuff. But in this case, because we're having sort of an '80s revival with Stranger Things and yeah. and and you know reawakening of that 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 whole film scoring that we did in the '80s, uh, I'm going back to that stuff, using those sounds. And the funny part is now I know exactly how to use that sound because they're asking me to do it again. <laughs> so 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 yeah. this, there's the discovery is missing. But the the knowledge base of what you know use this sound for this and use this sound for that is 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 automatic. Well, I think that's a very important point to make, which is with all the the it follows and the Stranger Things, this kind of this new synth wave of horror scoring. Everybody talks about Carpenter esque, Carpenter esque, Carpenter esque. But when mm-hmm. we think of Carpenter esque scores, especially from the time period that they're talking about. We're talking about the sounds that came out of your studio. That's true. That's true. Um, I was, you know, I didn't push the black and white white notes. Uh, John always took the first pass. I actually did later, but you know, usually following him. But yes, the 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 sounds I put up that stimulated his performances was definitely me. So I was mixing all the paint, and he was painting. Yeah. And even eventually, I used the same paint set and started painting on my own. And so. Shortly after, because of the success of four, they kind of roll right into Halloween five, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was produced the next year, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, I think they're pretty much back to back. Yeah. And so, different director, uh, same producer, fellow named Paul Freeman. So you know, it's just like we're going to do it again. Paul calls up, same as last time. This and that, and this and that, and this and that. Here's our deal short deal memo, and uh, then I have Dominique Orthon Girard come in. He's the director. Who's director. And he, his take on what he wants for the score is he wants me to go back to the piano score of Halloween 1. He wants to do a retro thing. Yeah. And so I did that. I, I really put a lot of piano out front moments, which, was very, which he was very pleased with. That, that was the mood he wanted. And then I decorated around the piano. So it, it's really the piano is out front more than ever before. And that was never recut. So so whatever movie he gave me, I then scored to that movie. And it had new characters, so I tried to do some new stuff. I even remember doing uh, something that was supposed to be a little bit funny. And then we also had... I'm trying to think about this now. Yeah, we also had the whole, um, am I right here in Halloween 5, we had young Jamie, who now has a couple girlfriends, and they go out to the, the Halloween party out 
in somebody's house and the girl gets killed in the barn and yeah yeah and and, and all that kind of stuff going on so so that that asks for new music that asks for new music and and the relationships of those friends so that's when it said all right different pattern of notes still in the flavor you couldn't go too far away because it's still being called halloween and michael myers michael myers is going to show up and he's going to get the same dun 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 no matter what you do yeah so those those, you know it it was like making a new suit but using the same same (laughs) cloth as last time yeah yeah and and it was good and and dominique was was happy and he was he was had had his input and came by and coached me on a couple things i remember the one scene that even creeping me out was when the girl gets caught in the, the the air shaft. Oh yeah, yeah, at the house, yeah. Yeah, at the house, and she's in there, and he's stabbing through the metal, and she's just trying to avoid getting stabbed. Oh man, that was that was freaky. Yeah, I like Five a lot because of it has a lot of really great set pieces and a lot of really great potential. That scene always comes to mind for me when you know some people are like oh five i was like yeah but five has like that has mm-hmm. <laughs> as the little girl stuck in the laundry chute or something and yeah right exactly it's, it's horrifying yeah, okay. and the opening title sequence is is awesome too from like oh the- yeah yeah we should talk about that so so in the opening of five remember i had this emulator and i finally had 17 seconds i could put in there so the opening sequence i actually took a recording of the halloween theme from Halloween 4, loaded the whole piece of music in, right? So I had on one key, if you just held the key, it, the, the theme would play. Yeah. But now when when we're chopping that pumpkin and, and, and the axe sounds, I would then kind of like could play the theme multiple times at different pitches on top of itself polyphonically. It was really a breakthrough moment for me of, of how powerful sampling is. The samples were single notes to emu- emulate an, an instrument. So you'd push the, the, the key down and you'd get a sound of a piano, or you'd get the sound of a, a drummer, you'd get the sound of a trumpet or something like that. And it'd just be bop, and you'd play that, and the next one you'd go bop, bop, bop. But now it was a whole piece of music in the sampler, and that was a breakthrough for me. That, that really opened up, oh, I hadn't even thought about that yet. You could do this now. Yeah. So, um, so the opening seat was very cutting edge for me to, to experiment within my own world and come something that I thought was just really freaky. And what was the sampler? It was this emulator two. It might, it might've been emulator three by then. I'm, I'm thinking of my timeline. I only got, to, I only got to emulator three and I was done. Yeah. I have a note that says Kurzweil 250. Yeah. The Kurzweil 250, but that wasn't as easy to get sounds in and out of. I see. The loading on that was a little more complicated. The emulator was very simple. You could literally just play it, put it in record, play anything into the audio input. It would capture it and push stop, and it would save that piece. And you could kind of, kind of trim it up. And for the for that opening title, pumpkin carving sequence, I also heard that you also recorded yourself with a, a like swashing a oh the ruler shame, yeah. across the microphone. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had from working. 
you know, my other hobby besides being a composer was was fixing up houses. So I I knew that all that stuff, and I had a a big drywall metal ruler, about a four footer. So I brought that into the studio, and I was I just recorded the sort of the the sound of swords, I'll call it. And loaded that into the emulator again because now you could do sound effects. It didn't have to be music anymore. It could be anything you want. And so use the emulator and perform the the sword swipes uh, or the cutting of the of the, of the pumpkins with these shing sounds from the from the metal ruler. An aspect of the score that I like a lot for Halloween Five, and it seems to be a recurring thing with like the foot chases, which is you take the familiar Halloween themes, but they become very disjointed and you kind of play them in little, little pieces and kind of play with the timing of them. Yeah, yeah. That well, that became the you know how do you how do you use the same thing over and over again and make it different? So, with like I said, with the sampler, you could go dun 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 on one note without having to play the whole thing anymore. And you could vary this if you vary the tempo by playing it a half note up, it would go a little faster. If you played a half note down, it would go a little slower. Play an octave lower, it would go from dun 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 dun. So that 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 whole exploration with sampling shows in that one because i was all i was all turned on about it It was like really cool i liked it <laughs> just play like a kid kid with a new toy kind of yeah exactly exactly and 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 as a composer you know and i said this already the sound that's happening out of the instrument dictates for me or stimulates what i play yeah so when i want to make a new score i look for a couple of new sounds or, or even a whole new instrument maybe they let me do whatever i wanted okay and and so that's that's what the score is i think it still holds up on its own as a good score, if I if I have to pick my favorites, Halloween Four is my favorite because that was like my baby. Yeah, right? that was the first time I went out, and now I'm going to just do more of what I did in Halloween Five with a with extra little lemon juice and and uh, uh, sugar on it. You know, where did the idea for the the cartoon sounds come from <laughs> for like the sheriff deputies? That was my that was my in, injection. Yeah, of trying to be trying trying to. Take a little bit more, so I guess what they call more standard, making them uh, Keystone copish. Yeah, yeah, dumb, dumb cops, and they kept it. I mean, it's not like anybody said, "Well, that doesn't work for me." There, it's in there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, obviously that's got to be part of the process is you have to throw stuff up at the wall and mm-hmm. see what sticks with the people that you're working for. And even when a lot of when, especially when I'm by myself, separate from working with somebody else. I'll tend to overplay or play too much. So editing it after the the first tracking of it is a, a very important part of the process to, to pull it back to the what is the essence of what was working for you and get rid of the extra junk and then rebuild one more pass on top of the, that essence track that you created. I have a note. It says, never scored Loomis with a theme. Yeah, yeah. That was one of John's techniques was... Loomis would always just be here. Here was the, he was such a good actor 
that he didn't need score to communicate what was going on. So, you know, one of the one of the rules from John is let the actors act. We only need music when we need to propel the story from point A to point B, or particularly if it's not acted that well, it needs a little, little reinforcement or wasn't shot that well or is a little disjointed. Music would then be the glue or, or the strokes that would go across all those cuts and, and kind of unify that scene into what it was supposed to be. Halloween's four and five were kind of back to back, but then we have a little bit of a, a couple year break before the sixth one comes up. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, I think that had all to do with business relationships, nothing to do with the fan base or the art at that point. I think they're approached by Oh no, Dimension Films is formed. That's what it is. Yeah. So there's so that the Weinsteins had this this uh, let's make some low budget horror films that was distributed by Disney. So it's like Disney's way to do horror films without having to put Disney's name on it and, and say that they're doing horror films. Sure. So so yeah, so we we get to Halloween six and um, the director shoots it. He does what he wants to do. I score Halloween six like it's finished. goes back to the dimension films and the wine scenes have a whole lot of input they they don't think it's going to be as good they don't think it's as good as it's supposed to be they want this and that and this and that so they made they went back for reshoots and sort of pumped up the ending with whatever they wanted to do so i did a second pass on halloween six rescoring the stuff that had changed and also kind of pumping up the drums and the guitars and making it more of a rock score And then also in Halloween 6, I think there was a whole thing where there was a DJ. So, so the DJ had a bunch of songs. So I actually had a couple couple songs that I, I contracted from outside artists that were rock bands and artists from the my, my small contacts that and dropped in those 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 songs on the on the radio in the background. And I think I did one even my, on my own uh, rock song that I that I did. <laughs> cut that in several times you know when the new there's a big massive box that came out a couple years ago they include the quote-unquote producers cut Mm -hmm. and the score overall on that cut of the film is very different than what ends up being on the film so did you i mean you just i know you just talked about you know redoing things but did you end up having to redo like a lot of the of the score or were they just recycling stuff for that cut no i redid it so i I, it was a do-over yeah. Whatever was there for that area of the movie, or if it was new stuff that never was there, it re- required the uh, new music. And like I say, the 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 pump it up was also talked. You know, and I was advised to like let's, let's give it a little more balls, man. Let's take it up another notch. You know. Yeah. Where did that edict come down from? Um, that came from Joe, the director. Because I actually really, you know, I don't know how you feel about it in comparison to the other ones, but I kind of like that it's, 
it's got a lot more like kind of rock guitar behind it and mm-hmm. big, like a bigger drum sound. I mean, it, in terms of a, as a listening experience, when you're listening to them as, as CDs or whatever, it's kind of cool to hear it in that different style. Yeah, yeah, the Halloween theme with the with with rock guitars and pumping drums and bass for a rock version of Halloween, I think that's the best one. Other other bands have done it, and, and everybody's done their own take on it. But for where I was at, and this would have been like 1991, maybe. It ends up, I mean, because it went through so many things, I don't think it comes out till 95. Oh, no, it wasn't that long. All right, so let's say, yeah, it must have been, must have been 94 when I started on that thing, yeah. So, so we did it once, went back to recuts, got shots, came back again. And then even Joe had another guy jump in as sound designer to try to give him more sound effecty things to pump it up to. So, you know, more production than the original. So back to the producer's cut. The producer's cut was done in sort of a retro idea going back to, you know, always going back to what was the good stuff, which was the first Halloween, trying to look at that one more time and say, why did that work? What, what was that in its most simplest form? And then, injecting that into the new score for that particular sequel that was that was my drill no i you know i'm sure likely there wasn't much thought put into it but i i find it interesting and and it's kind of because it's coming from you is that there are tracks like uh i think on the soundtrack they're called thorn Mm -hmm. and uh, it's his game that have a very prince of darkness or even the thing (laughs) type feels to them Yeah, no, uh, yeah, the, the thorn, uh, very much a ghost of Prince of Darkness there, for sure. Yeah. And it was a good cue. I liked it. it had, you know, we, we played with the bass guitar as, as the main thing with the bass guitar with an echo on it. And then built on, on, on top of that. And again, this, here was a theme that wasn't part of it. And we also had in Halloween 6, the guy with the little tattoo on his arm that helps Michael Myers. Yeah. Like like he befriends him because of the of the the, the cult and the, the ruins that are that are predicting things and the ruins have power or magic power in them. All devices devices that needed new new music or all new music or certainly a, a, a really different take on the thing. The other thing I remember in the redoing it in the redo is they wanted more piano. They said it again. At that time I had graduated to having a synclavier system, which was sort of like the emulator on super steroids. Yeah. And so on that instrument, because it was multi-voice, multi-timbral, I would put up like four pianos at the same time. So, so 
when I would play the piano part on the stacked pianos. It was like the biggest piano ever. And then I could do another track of more piano. So certainly 10 fingers wouldn't have covered what was going on. <laughs> yeah. We were down to 20 and 30 fingers worth of piano being played. Did you also do that on five as well? Yeah, five. Five is where I started with that. Yeah, that stacking of of the, the piano, that was that was a uh, was a technique, and it worked well. Just uh, as someone that has lived with the Halloween franchise, probably at this point more than anybody, except for I guess the late Mustafa Akkad. Like, what do you think it is about that original music, even though you didn't compose it yourself, that really works and has ha- has had longevity? Well, you know, it, it has some musical properties that John selected, like the Halloween theme is in 5-4 time. It's not a 4-4 four, four thing. So it's, it's a little irregular, a little unsettling to be that way. But you, know, you listen to it, you don't think 5, but that's what's happening. I remember I did another movie with Tommy later. He wanted to do stuff in 7-4. It was a little Coupe de Ville way of making things a little strange. Sure. And the fact that it's so simple. Like a, a, a trained musician would look at that and go, that, that's junk, man. There's nothing to that. But the audience and the listeners go, yeah, it's simple. I can remember it. And it's burned in. It just burns in. And then you know, a lot of times I, I meet somebody, and especially their, their younger, younger members of their family, the, the younger ones, want to show me how they learned how to play the Halloween <laughs> theme. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like instead of chopsticks, they play Halloween now. Because it's it's very doable, and that that is that look that's Carpenter's skill of the minimalist, just the lead, no more than exactly what you need, and not more than that, and keeping out of the way. I mean, when he says he refers to his music as carpeting or wallpaper, it's not supposed to draw attention to the music; it's only there to support the scene, which you know, as a director, he understands this direct the, the dialogue, the story, and all this other stuff is happening, and he's in there to just fluff it up a little bit. But I know that I know that when they sc- they screened Halloween without the music, the particular distributor came in and said, ah, so what? Same person comes back with the score and he goes, wow, what you guys do to this movie? This is amazing. So he he nailed it. There's no question about it. He nailed it. Yeah. As someone that has now scored a ton of films throughout your career, how important do you think repetition is? To especially horror films, but just film scoring in general. Uh, it's very important. You You cannot... You know, when you're an artist and you're making an album, you know, you usually tend to do song A, song B, song C, and they're all different. Not so in film scoring. You want to take a theme that, that works for you and then uh, develop it. So you may hear it in the beginning of the movie in a simple piano form, but that, that little three-note, six-note, eight-note thing that you're doing, you keep playing it over and over with different instruments in different ways, longer and shorter, so that when you get to the end of the movie, you're going to get the big produced version of a very simple piano theme that you heard in the beginning. That's a, that's a normal technique. Horror movies, any movies, movies in general, that's what you do. Yeah. That's how you make it work. And so now, so now the, learn, the audience has learned that piece of music after an hour and a half, 
they know it, and when they hear it, it's familiar now. In the beginning, it wasn't familiar. They were just in you know first class. But now they've graduated for the, from the composers, biggest, baddest, most sentimental, most action, most crying, whatever you're going to do with the theme at the end. Yeah. And so, and so you, you run that through. And usually there's like three kind of the main theme and two sub-themes that go with other characters or other, other aspects of the movie or other locations of the movie. Uh, but that's, that's, that's it. You know, uh, that's, that's how you do it. You know, if you were to continue to keep to making different music through the whole movie, I think it would be very disjointed. Yeah. The, 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 the ride or the experience of the movie is from the beginning to end. It's already been well architected in the script and the story and where the movie needs to go. Then that gets shot. Same thing, the, the flow of the movie. But, you know, as we know, a lot of times there's differences between the script and the, and what you really got. And then you got to adjust in editing to maximize what you do have. And uh, when it's a well-edited movie, scoring it is also very easy. Yeah. Looking back at all the Halloween scores that you worked on, how do you think they hold up and fit in your catalog of now scoring experience? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, if, it's, if there's a category, the Halloween scores are their own category. The ones that are with the Carpenter themes, for sure, are a, a book set of two, four, five, six. Halloween 3 is its own thing, but ish. And then uh, Escape from New York is all by itself. There's nothing else that we did that's like that. Christine is its own thing with a, with, with a little bit of reference back to the thing. Big Trouble is a whole new beast with a rock song and lots of Asian influence and lots of new percussion. Prince of Darkness takes its own journey that doesn't reflect the Halloween. And they live as a blues score. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of variety. And since then, I've done horror movies. I get asked to do horror movies. I wonder why. Uh, <laughs> But I enjoy that, and I, I you know, I, I'm very much a collaborator. Uh, one of my directors uh, that I supported for years was Anthony C. Ferranti. He eventually found his his success in Sharknado. Yeah, which I actually turned down. I can't believe I did this. <laughs> but uh, I, I saw I saw the movie with no effects in it, and he was telling me, "Well, this is going to happen. This is going to." And I looked at it, and I just didn't have the energy. Yeah. And so I passed. Got a different composer. It turned out to be a nightmare, anyhow. But yeah. Golly, that would have, you know would have been now the Sharknado guy, yeah. more famous than Halloween. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It might have more sequels by the time it's done. Though. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I, I think they yeah they even and he told me that one of them they ended it, and then in order to fix that they had a time warp, so they had to come back and fix the time warp so it didn't end, and they could keep going in the storyline. It's, it's it's all over the place. It's as wild as you can imagine. Yeah, and and, and it's a combination of Anthony's filmmaking and, and his, his sort of wacky personality. Sure goes he's a good guy well uh is there anything about halloween that you want to talk about before we wrap this up well you know we've got a a new halloween coming out this year so this is the year of halloween and i understand that the new one goes back to the last scene in the old one and literally ignores all sequels and goes in a new direction completely which was enough to get carpenter excited to want to be the executive producer and i'm sure him and cody and and Daniel will score it. I'm, I'm sure that there's no, no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Uh, I would say for people that uh, are horror movie fans, and I would imagine that if they're listening to this podcast, they probably are, keep an eye out for when Alan plays because it's, it's awesome. <laughs> I, have, I finally got to, got to see it myself. Uh, you do an amazing, a very cool live show, which is like a big, long medley of 
all the stuff you've worked on over the years, especially with a huge emphasis on the carpenter stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really cool to watch you work in that way because it's a completely solo performance and it's really neat with the video projection and all that stuff. Yeah, I'll definitely do uh, a lot of performances. This year. I'm sure I'll get asked. Most of the time I do the horror movie conventions like Horror Hound or Thriller or you know, the various places where there's a whole lot of other horror movie stuff. Uh, but I'm also working on my own music for this year. I want to put my my Alan Howard's 2018 stamp down and put a new album up and maybe build on that too so people think that, you know, I'm done. But if they know I'm not done, they're oh, look, man, listen to that shit. So I got some stuff cooking in the percolator. Oh, okay, awesome. So, I, yeah, I, I enjoy playing. I'm still a musician, an old rocker, and I enjoy getting up and playing. You know, it's, it's not, not only a studio experience, but the most of everything is in the studio in a, in a, a darkened room with a video running and playing keyboards. I mean, that's the main how it works. And uh, for, for our geeks, I use Logic as my sequencer and then Pro Tools as my final palette of mixes for deliverables to whatever movie it is. Yeah. It's totally worth seeing. I mean, it's a for the people that did go out to see John live. I mean, it's a very different experience, and that, and that I appreciate that about what you're doing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, John. John does a nice thing. Uh, he's got his son Cody and his godson Daniel and three other musicians. There's a six piece band up there playing a rock show. Yeah, let's face it, it's a rock show. Uh, mine is more oriented towards the film. Most of the time, it's just me. Uh, occasionally with a bigger budget, I add a band called Zombie Zombie from Paris. Uh, so I get a, a real drummer and another another synth player. Yeah. And then in my biggest version, I actually have the video being done live by an artist named uh, Jade Boyd from Australia. Because, you know, like anything, and anybody who plays in a band, playing by yourself is one thing. Playing with other people is, you know, there's an exchange. Yeah. It's very dynamic. It makes you, it makes you do different stuff. And I've told you, if you ever come and do it again in New York City, that I will, I will, my band will back you. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And just as far as tracking this stuff, I have alanhoworth.com, my website. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, whatever's happening, I'll, I'll put up there. And then also, you know, CDs and LPs and stuff like that are available in the store. And I, I personally sign all of them. I take this very serious. I sit down, I, I try to do good penmanship, not scribble. And, uh, you know, if they want custom messages like, uh, you know, happy birthday, Nancy, or stuff like that. I'll put that all in there. That's fine. Yeah, and you also have, which I think is really interesting and cool, is you have, for some of those earlier scores, you have, like, the sheet music, Spiral Bound and stuff that you that you sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those are totally unique and only available on my website. I've not gone into any sort of Amazon publishing. But, yeah, it turned out that the scores for Halloween 2 and 3 and the score from Escape from New York had to be transcribed because contractually... Uh, the deal that the movie company signed, whatever production it was, that was a, that was how it turned in. Normally, that would be no big deal because the composer wrote it all down and he had a band play it. But in this case, we improvise all the time, so I had to go back and really figure out what we did, write it out and as music uh, for a deliverable. And I found these scores in my storage. I went, these are great books. So I, I went and did nice copies of them and put them all in sequence. And there's a music cue sheet in there, so that's really the a great little treat and, and, and collectors. I, you know, there's not a hundred more, more than a hundred of any of these out there uh, until someone so enough to want to make some more. So yeah, at the website, check out the, the score books. They're, they're great collectors items too. Well, thanks a lot, Alan. I'm thrilled to get to talk to you again. Your interview in the book is one of the longest because it's a culmination of three really great conversations that we had that spanned your music career, but also 
a lot of your sound work and special sound effects and sound design and stuff. So it's always fascinating to talk to you. You're a wealth of information. And I always, uh, I'm very grateful that you're always willing to be generous with your time. Yeah, no, you did, you did a great job. I was very pleased. You gave me a chance to edit and update and correct. So it's very accurate. Anthology is sort of my musical career time timeline from the very beginnings of being a kid in a rock band through to as current as we were up until the last time we talked. I need to thank Alan for lending his time and knowledge to the show. Between my book, this podcast, and the time we've spent just hanging out, I've had the privilege of being able to converse with him for many hours on several occasions, and it is always fascinating. He is a wealth of knowledge on many topics, and I am honored to have him continue to show support for both me and my work. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help the podcast get recommended to potential listeners and raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. You can find Alan and shop for Alan Howarth signed soundtracks at alanhoworth.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. The soundtracks discussed on this episode were... Big Trouble in Little China, which can be found on CD from La La Land Records, and on vinyl LP from Mondo. Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, which is available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, is also available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. And Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, is also available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. Please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. Mm -hmm.